0: Okay, welcome to the Who Cares podcast brought to you by Caring Connections. I'm your host, Paul Growney, and this podcast is all around bringing you the people who care from across the Liverpool City region. You know, it's a lot of negativity going on in the press, in the media, in society in general. It's been a real tough time for everyone. So this podcast is all about bringing you then people who are trying to make things better, make the reading a better place and today i've got fantastic guests i've got dr warren donnellan do i call you doctor or do you, like call doctor? you can if you want dr yeah. donnellan okay <laughs> so um, warren's uh, a senior lecturer a psychologist from the University of Liverpool, so today we 're going to be getting into things talking a bit around um, carers and we 're talking specifically around unpaid carers, so then people who may be looking after you know a, a husband looking after a wife, a, you know a son looking after a parents, a daughter looking after the dad whatever so we're going to be looking at a bit of the challenges they face and things around the models of resilience. We'll be getting into the pandemic, but we're not going to dwell on it. That's all we're hearing about lately. But really going to look at some of the good stuff and good work um, Warren's been doing over the past few years on how to try and um, identify ways of making these people's lives a bit better. So welcome to the podcast, um, Warren. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So Warren, tell us a bit about yourself, what you do, what what you're about.
1: Yeah, I'm a lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Liverpool Uni. Um, So I've been there now for... I've been there since I was an undergraduate student. It's been like coming up for 10 years, crazy. But um, I've been lecturing, so teaching psychology and and conducting research on the side for the last sort of uh, four years. Um, So yeah, most of my teaching focuses on um, health psychology. So how um, the interplay between mental health and physical health and how people manage those kinds of challenges. But most of my research, it's kind of always looked at um, care given in some capacity as you said particularly um, unpaid carers family carers okay so so when you say health psychology for those people out there that you know
0: are not familiar of, of what that is or what like a health psychologist would do and and how that interplays with you know the day-to-day health what is it what what is
1: it what what does a health psychologist do it's basically health psychology is the study of it's the psychology of health so the psychology of people with um, physical health conditions because obviously you can't really disentangle um physical health from mental health and um, there's always a psychological component to living with a chronic illness for example so it's about better understanding um the nature the psychological nature of someone's health condition um typically looking at people with chronic illnesses but a lot of my stuff looked at dementia um okay more so looking at the caring, the caregiving challenges and the resilience associated with that. Um, but really looking at people living with dementia has been like the focus of my work.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I'd imagine that's quite challenging then dealing with them really emotive topics yeah. on a, So, so with, with the health, health psychology elements, I'd imagine that feeds a lot into like public health agendas and preventative initiatives and, uh, and things like that. I mean, we've been doing some work at the charity. We, you know, we do a lot of work around you know, suicide prevention and things like that in in our counselling services and we spoke about it on this podcast and it's a massively difficult area, prevention, you know, and one of the key problems we have is how do you actually measure prevention? You know, how do you you demonstrate you've done something which has prevented something from happening? You know, and from a you know from a, a more of an expert's point of view from like a statistician <laughs> a psychologist what can you ever
1: actually infer prevention from an intervention it is one of the biggest challenges i think i mean good quality research should um be in partnership with you know industry partners and should have measurable outputs and outcomes um i think the challenge is um it's around measurements it's about being clear about the kind of outcomes that you're trying to measure so are we looking at something like You know, with suicide, again, it's not my kind of research specialism, but, you know, it's it's not necessarily about, it's about awareness. So it's about breaking down the outcomes that you're trying to um, reduce or promote, making sure that they're measurable and realistic and feasible. I mean, for example, I'm involved in a project at the moment, which is, um, we're trying to develop um, a resilience measurement scale. So the idea is, um, there's a list of items that like you would see on any questionnaire and a dementia carer a spousal dementia carer someone looking after their husband or wife would fill that out and that would give a score and that would give the person an indication of how resilient they are and the interesting thing about that is uh, people with lower scores you'd infer that they were more at risk so you could potentially target intervention at an earlier stage okay. and it's a bit more informative than giving people the usual battery of you know measures and questions that you normally give them, so it give you an indication of who 's doing quite well, yeah and who 's perhaps most at risk, so you can target that intervention accordingly, hopefully at a much earlier stage so there 's things like that you can do as well but. see i love I love um the resilience
0: work I, I think it 's fantastic. I feel the word resilience sometimes can be bounced around a little bit, and I suppose From my understanding, what I class resilience as is kind of, I don't know, bounce back ability, being able to get up off the canvas after taking a dig.
1: What would be more of (laughs) a a scientific way of of putting what resilience is? The interesting thing about resilience is everyone has their own definition. So I ask my students in, in the lectures, you know, who hears resilience, and they put their hand up or whatever, um, and then I ask them, why? Why do you think Why do you think that's the case? And you get a whole host of definitions. The, the, the definition I use is one by uh, Jill Windle, who's based at Bangor, mm-hmm. um, and she did a big analysis of lots of different definitions and came up with the following one. So it's a process of adapting to, negotiating with, and managing significant sources of stress or trauma. So whatever that stress or trauma is, it might be being a carer, it might be living with dementia, it might be... Um, I don't know, going through a a divorce or living with chronic illness or might be the pandemic, the way that you respond to that stress. Mm. And really that definition argues it's about everyone has resources, whether it be within themselves, personal resources or resources within their environment, the same way that you put petrol in your car, you need resources to fuel this sort of capacity for resilience. So I think that kind of chimes with people. People can identify those resili- those resources in their lives. So what do you think, was that an interesting one? So would you say some
0: people you'd say just are, you know, when you call them fighters, natural fighters. So is resilience something that's innate or something that, like as you said before, you'd identify people who may be low and, and do an intervention on them. Is there interventions that can
1: improve people's levels of resilience? I think some of my my research has shown that resilience is amenable to change, which is again, contrary to what a lot of people think. A lot of people think it is an innate thing. Mm. And if you think it's an innate thing, that means it's not really subject to change, which is a bit kind of defeatist. Um, And I think some personal qualities and personal characteristics are stable and set. So you might be a particularly stoic person. Mm. A lot of the older people that we deal with have those kinds of personality characteristics. But it's more than that. It's about having resilient family structures, resilient networks of friends. It's about um, the, resi- the way that you sort of interact with services. So it's, it's a wider sort of whole picture. It's a whole ecological model, what we call it. So if you take it like that, you can either promote resources which we know help mm. or try and um, reduce challenges which, which we know hinder. So in that respect, you can promote it, but it does depend on how you view it, really. So can resilience be looked at? both as an individual and sort of
0: group and community-type perspective as well. Yeah. Because I suppose, like, as a nation and I suppose as a global thing, like, how resilient are we going to have to be to come back from all this madness going on now?
1: It's massive. I think there's resilience research, really. It started off life looking at... they were looking at kids. They looking at kids who'd had, you know um trauma early on in life and it was the kids that had not then gone on to develop mental health problems they were like what is it that they have that the others don't yeah um but then more recently they started looking at it in older people and i think obviously with the pandemic and stuff um it's a case of what is the long-term impact that's going to have and resilience has been criticized more recently for being as you said earlier kind of you know if it's an innate thing then What's the point? We can't yeah, yeah. promote it from a service perspective, but actually it's the way that you define it. So I think there's a whole host of things that we're going to have to do. But again, it's it's about you've got to fully understand the challenge first and understand the adversity that you're working with. And as we're trying to put out fires at the moment, we won't really know the true impact or how we deal with that, probably for some months to come or even even years to come. So it's quite... That's
0: that's that's really interesting because, as I say, I mean even just you know talking from the personal perspective within you know our organisation with a lot of the carers, I think one of the key things when we're recruiting a carer, I always say the key skill, no matter how good they are and whatever they've got, they've got to be resilient because what we always see is that if they haven't done it before, no matter as I say, no matter the background, academic, whatever, after that first week, if they can't handle some of the challenges. then they're gonna go. Whereas then people that get through that first week and maybe say are resilient to that, they stay the long term. Then. and that's what I always say, resilient. And it, I suppose it's one of them. Most people will say the resilience, but how do you even? How do you test that? Yeah, you know what I mean. How can you 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 prove that?
1: I think it's because if you look at a dictionary definition of resilience, it's all about withstanding stress. But actually, when you start looking at the psychological literature, it's not resilience. Isn't the same as like. What, what I would refer to as coping. So kind of weathering the storm, um, you know dragging yourself up off the floor it's a really important quality for life but it's not the same as being resilient so resilience is about bouncing back it's about going beyond that a little bit it's about growth in in some respects. so there are plenty of people most people will will say that they're resilient because they use that kind of definition but actually when you start looking at the more academic definitions or the definitions that they're using you know clinical practice it's about bouncing back and having those kinds of qualities and I, i agree it's a i think it's one of the most single single most important qualities you can have as a carer um, whether that be professional or, or unpaid. How does, like, I suppose, the more
0: clinical NHS models, GPs and all that, how do, how, how do they fit within this? Because you see th- a lot of things now um, around, like, social prescribers and, and things like that who exist within the GP practices to prescribe it into these things. Is this this model now of, of trying to make people more resilient so they're not so overly dependent on health and cl- social care, clinical services
1: yeah i think there is so you'll often see kind of resilience training programs they tend to be quite popular it's quite a popular um measure to look at but again i'm not sure to what extent those kinds of training programs are based on um you know contemporary robust research yeah i imagine that the most focused on like that kind of what we call trait resilience idea that it's about promoting resilience in the individual i wonder how much they focus on people's networks around them and the interpersonal factors and things like that i haven't been on one from a kind of occupational perspective um but yeah i think i think there is an increasing focus on resilience particularly around training but i think ultimately i mean most of my research has looked at um unpaid family carers i have started to look at professional carers both like domiciliary carers and, and residential carers as well because i was interested to see are the things that we see in unpaid family carers how far do they translate to these professionals because often yeah. they both have the carer badge or, or, or they might not choo- choose to use that badge yeah but obviously you'd imagine there are differences but to what extent are they similar and to what extent are they different so that's kind of what yeah. we started to look at more
0: well, that'd be really really interesting yeah no it's like you say with the um the resilience chain, and I've, I've saw a few of these things. There's always a lot of people promoting them on, you know, LinkedIn and all that, you know, send your team on it and all that, but I, I'm always I am always a little bit sceptical because you think, like, well, you know, I can watch a video on how to get up after getting punched in the face, but <laughs> until I had to get punched in the face and have that physiological and physical feeling, it's quite hard to, to know how, how, how I'd react to that. So is there elements of, like... CBT and and stuff like that entwined and all this type of thing?
1: The thing about resilience, because it's such a wide construct, there's lots of different uh, routes to resilience and lots of different resources involved. There's lots of different ways to promote it. Mm. So I imagine things like CBT um, would have a role in perhaps some of the the more kind of psychological factors. But obviously you need a, it's not a one size fits all, you need other other, um, things as well to promote those other things that we know are important. Um, but the thing is about resilience, it doesn't exist without stress. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite yeah. a, it's quite a um, positivist. It, it's very much in line with that kind of positive psychology movement that we saw in like the last, you know, 50 or so years, where we started to move away from looking at stress and depression and all those kind of mental health measures and starting to look at things like, how can we promote hardiness? How can we promote resilience? How can we promote growth? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think... Without, it's quite a positivist message is that without stress, you can't grow. Yeah. So it's about weathering that storm, as you said with like some of the people that work with current Connections, pushing through that initial stage and then seeing where you end up. I think that's more of a kind of constructive message really to tell people. So if anyone was, say, listening to this, um, Warren, and you
0: think, you know, they were struggling, they were thinking to themselves, like, how do I build resilience? I know that that would be a, a, a quite a tough question to answer, but what potential advice could you give to
1: these people? I think, firstly, it's about understanding um, the the nature of the challenge that you're under. So, obviously, we're under no disillusions. People don't just exist in a vacuum. People are encountering lots of different challenges all at once. You might be, you know, a parent. You might be an employee. You might be living through a pandemic. You might be a carer. So, it's about about sort of trying your best to compartmentalise the stresses. And then what will work for one of those stresses won't necessarily work for the other. So, thinking about the resources you need to combat one. And then understanding whether they work for the other one or whether they don't, and it's again, it's just telling yourself that what works for you might not work for Joe Blogs down the road. So, um, if some, you know, if you're speaking to someone and think, you know, this really works for me, counselling really worked for me, for example, CBT really worked for me, and it doesn't work for you, don't feel bad because there will be a resource out there that will. Yeah. Again, it's 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 impossible to kind of suggest what will and what won't, but it's about understanding the nuances and the, the complexity of it. And but I suppose for that to work, you need them. Um- Things within the community
0: that can help of people course. identify what what's what's out there. So suppose you know, I think the resilience thing is, is absolutely massive. To be honest, just going back to it, the amount of people that are contacting us now um who are struggling with the mental health through lockdown is unbelievable. The waiting list we've never had before. So I think that's going to be massive. But kind of moving on. <clears throat> the, the unpaid carers. I mean, that, that was something I, I, I've always been passionate about um, for years. Um, so, if you were to, because I know there's some, uh, there can be some um, controversy over the, the, what the call unpaid carers, informal carers. What what's the best way of? Because I've had me hands
1: slapped for saying <laughs> informal carers before. Yeah, it's um, you, you see, you see it all. Different terminology used. Unpaid. I, I don't like. I understand that the controversy around informal because it suggests that it's not yeah, proper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, it's a distinction really. It's it's a way of distinguishing them from people who do it for a living. So essentially, I, I use the I, I do use the term informal carers. I wouldn't necessarily use that term if I was speaking to a group of carers. Yeah, yeah. there's different definitions in research and, and in real life, sort of thing. So I think informal carers is fine. It's essentially people who don't they don't do it for a living. They do it because they love their family member or their friend. I mean, I, I was always. Shocked at the statistics. You know, when I worked
0: in the Whittle, we had a, an unpaid carer, sort of peer mentoring project to support them. And at the time, I think in the Whittle, there was estimated, and this was about five years ago, there was about sixty thousand carers. the estimated, and I was like, "What? How can mm. there be so many people doing this? And so many people who weren't accessing any type of support? Um, they were still, you know, going to work, getting on with the lives, but the stress." and the pressure they were under was yeah. was unbelievable um, and i just I, I mean what we found it was just a massive gap in support for carers yeah. and also for former carers people who've dedicated whatever x portion of the life caring for a spouse or whatever then that spouse dies and this person's left with this massive hole in the life yeah um, so I mean, so what? So what sort of stuff then? Yeah. Have you have you been doing then, Warren, with with um, this group?
1: Well, firstly, the scary thing is that's probably an un- underrepresentation because
0: what that's sixty
1: thousand, I reckon so. Because oh, I mean, it, it brings into how do they capture those people? There is going to be people they're not capturing. Yeah, there is going to be people who don't even identify as a carer, so they're not coming forward and yeah. presenting. That so, was always a big issue. People
0: would get very touchy. Yeah, yeah. If you if you said, I, "I'm not," it's my job as yeah. a husband, the
1: wife, yeah. a son, a daughter. Yeah. The problem is you can't um, support people unless they use that badge Yeah. Um, so it's often like a, a trade off between their sense of identity am I a husband, am I a carer am I both, am I neither um, and the badge that you need to wear to get the kind of support available to you people are very proud aren't they because oh of massively like- yeah
0: my grandparents, and you know, and I saw it when we used to do that work ourselves. People would not put their hands up and say it, and he would get offended if he yeah. said, You said that, I'm a carer. And he'd be like, I've, You know, I've worked on me, like, you know, I've done X, Y, and Z, I, you know, I can handle it myself.
1: But it's such a shame because there is so yeah. much support out there, isn't it? It comes back to that issue around prevention. People, it's, it's the same for us all, isn't it? We, we, we often wait till it's too late, we wait yeah. until there's a problem. And then we act. But often, if you look, most of my works looks at older people, because typically most carers are older um, in, in dementia. And particularly the older men, there's obviously gender effects, obviously, mm. wait until there's a problem. So they'll wait until, you know, for example, their wife's health deteriorates massively or there's an incident or an event and then they'll reach crisis point or breaking point and then they'll reach out but often by then a lot of damage has been done yeah so it's about trying to capture people early but it's, ma- it's it is easier said than done and I, but i think it's it's absolutely going to require a team effort because i do often wonder to what extent services speak to one another because often you know if you take like one so there's a 78 year old woman who's got alzheimer's and uh, primary care is his um, husband she might be. She'll be seeing a GP. She'll be in the memory clinic. She might have a psychiatrist. She'll be in and out of hospital, and then the husband might have his own health challenges. Yeah. And it's like, how do you kind of marry all that up so that it speaks to one another? And
0: well, yeah, yeah. and that's what a, a massive problem I, I think you come across every day. This lack of talking to each yeah. other and um, data sharing. Um, there's so many people that get you know, lost in the system. And the thing is, as you say, the prevention would save so much money in the long term because yeah. if they intervene sooner, then you prevent these hospital visits, clinician visits, etc. cetera. Um, but we see, you know, in social care, even getting the, um, you know, packages put in place and things like that, it, it can be massively difficult. And families are, are terrified. You know, you've got the things around money. So the big risk, so people we see people who they don't want to put care packages in place or so they say, oh, I don't want one. I don't want to lose my house. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, so I've worked all my life for this money. I don't want to lose it. Um And, you know, that isn't the case with dom care. I mean, with residential care, it's different. But this the system it, it is very tough. And, I mean, we had to sort it for, for my own granddad. Um, but only because I'm in the system, we kind of, you know, worked around it. But mm. I think for anyone who isn't, it's such a tough time and to get needs assessments and things like that it's
1: yeah it's yeah i think there's i think there's a lot we can do using kind of internet based online intervention i think that's that's yeah. a massively underutilized area i'm involved in a project at the moment where we're working with um a an online startup that provides support for carers in general across the whole kind of lifespan. And their whole thing is around, you know, it's designed by carers for carers. So they provide, like, they do online cuppers each day, give them a point of contact, signposting, information sharing, both carers getting a sense of satisfaction from providing their support and information to others, but also acquiring it. And I think that kind of creating a forum within which carers can get together with fellow carers share challenges that they're all going through. And that's really powerful as well. So yeah. on, and I think at the moment, especially because everyone's kind of locked down and socially isolated, I wonder whether there's more we can do. And again, online support's never going to replace face-to-face interaction. But at the moment, it's thinking outside the box and what can we do? online virtually and i think the pandemic as well if, you know th- th- there are some positives to come out
0: of it and it, yeah. it is things like some of these interactive different ways of doing things that you know i've definitely seen within the hospital and even within our organization things that kind of we're kind to get slowly moving but with the pandemic they've kind of been rushed to the forefront and some yeah. of them have been really successful i think one of the issues we found definitely with um, sort of the, the interactive sort of stuff within the charity is in some of the you know deprived communities which we work, IT literacy isn't always yeah. the best, and access to Wi-Fi all this. So, so that has that has caused us a problem. But I suppose going back to the carers thing, one one thing we found is that in the past is that you'd, you'd often find carers' health would actually be would have deteriorated that much that at times they'd need care themselves. The mental health, and um, even the physical health, they, they were just so emotionally burnt out. I don't yeah. know if that's the right word. Um, it was It was hard to, to, to see, to be honest, on mm. a lot of occasions. And I suppose, uh, like you were saying before, and this goes back to the resilience, how do you prevent things like burnout mm. and, you know, what can we put in place?
1: It's, we know that carers, family carers, have significantly poorer mental and physical health, um, just purely as a result of the amount of care they provide to their loved ones. I think some of it's more easy to prevent than others. So I think things like, um, you know, if you're burnt out because of the amount of hours you're putting in, that's difficult to get around. But if you're burnt out and become physically ill because you have, didn't go to that GP appointment or didn't go to that health checkup, then it's coming back to that point where it's about identifying your needs and, and, and intervening as early as possible. And if that requires someone else to give someone a nudge, whoever that might be, yeah. Then so be it. It's about early intervention, I think. Yeah,
0: and it it, it just goes back to that, that first bit of the yeah, conversation. Yeah. I think
1: prevention is is the key, the key message. No, it and I just think
0: how would have these unpaid carers been faring through throughout the pandemic? Have they just gonna be on twenty four seven care duties, if they would they have had to isolate themselves from the person they care for? It must have been extremely traumatic
1: yeah. um for them. There's been Quite a few research projects in the university looking at COVID, as you can imagine, Mm. and there's there's a big one um, with a colleague in the public health department looking at the impact of COVID on um, dementia carers, family dementia carers in particular. And unfortunately, as you can imagine, they have fared disproportionately worse. And a lot of it is to do with service closures. So often, services, some services, have been able to remain active, others have just not been able to remain active. So that has often been a lifeline, the only lifeline for some people and for that just to be pulled from under them, they've literally been left on their own Uh, and that's just the people known to the research study, so again we're only ever sampling from a population you can extrapolate from that and you can generalise from that but the the issues that you identify are often far further reaching than you think So you say, you know, because you've specialised a lot in
0: dementia carers Yeah I mean, and i go again, you know, we work with people with dementia and you know the challenges are, uh, even on the staff are, are yeah. so great in certain cases. What would you say is is the key challenges um, these dementia carers facing, specifically you know caring for someone with dementia?
1: Mm. I think with dementia, again, if you look at the research, dementia carers in particular have some of the it's like a, is a, it's a bleak picture. They have the, the kind of the worst outcomes out of the lot, and I think it's put down to the fact that dementia's. It's such a complex condition that presents in very, very different ways for different people. Um, so, it's it can be unpredictable. So, the symptomology and the presentation of it can be quite unpredictable. The course of it doesn't always go the same um, across different individuals. Um, and it's it's over such a long period as well. Like Alzheimer's disease, I think the average prognosis is eight years. Is it, yeah? So, and I think with things like vascular dementia, which is associated with kind of... Um, you know blood supply in the brain that can be up to 10 I mean, a family friend of mine had was living with dementia for 13 years wow. so that's kind of over a decade of that person living with dementia but the whole family around them the whole life's been put on hold um to just do your best to look after this person so say that case for example you know well i suppose say
0: someone's that was listening to this and you know they had a family member who Maybe just that got a diagnosis of dementia or you know the other' spouse or whatever with dementia what what would you say could potentially be the best course of action for them to intervene early to maybe get the support they need
1: when i my research a lot of it has involved sitting down and interviewing carers about their experiences and what carers have taught me because everything I know about dementia has come from people living it um what they've what I've learned from that is that the people who end up with better outcomes are people who um, are not afraid of asking for help. And in some cases, they might have been let down by services, but they've proactively... Like one lady said to me, she was like a dog with a bone. You know, not advocating on behalf of your loved one shouldn't have to happen, but doing that, not stopping until you get the support plan that you need in place. And often, where there are gaps in communication between certain services. The carer might have to, in those cases, act as a sort of conduit between those services. Um, But I think it's about not being afraid to ask for help. Um, It's about plugging those gaps wherever possible and asking for help where you can't. And it comes back to that ecological resilience idea again. It's about, as early as you can, identifying the tools that work for you and the tools that don't. And don't bother pursuing those that don't. The dementia carers, one, I think... One of, one of the key things I
0: think again going back to you know the experience in our family and my granddad you know thankfully wasn't suffering with dementia um, but that process of of getting support in place was tough and I think I know you mentioned these things you found with carers to get them good outcomes was having that fight and having that push but I suppose you've got a real high majority of people who, who, you know they, they don't have a clue about the system they don't like you know fighting people in you know authority public sector they don't know what they're entitled to um so suppose it's how how do we get these people that that don't have that fight and i suppose that's where organ like advocacy organizations Mm -hmm. and things like that come in place but again from a charity perspective you're only as good really as how you promote the service and how them services can actually access these people so I, d- I do think that is one of the main barriers that, that we always come up against around people. Um, what, firstly, getting a diagnosis of dementia seemed to be a tough mm-hmm. one because it seemed as once a person had that diagnosis, then they could access more support or to be more available. Is, is that right?
1: Yeah. Uh, most of the people I speak to, there's been a diagnosis. Some of them, the lucky ones, are attending a service that I've used to recruit from who haven't had a diagnosis yet. Um, but for whatever reason, they've attended. So, I mean, I think diagnosis does start the ball rolling. Um, but again, not necessarily. How do so, you make that? Di- is diagnosis based on like a physiological marker? It de- it depends on the type of dementia. So, they'll often do a, an initial screening, like a, a mini mental state exam, where they'll give them a, a memory test. But to be honest with you, that there are problems associated with those kinds of tests. Because, I mean, if I did it, I'm not sure I'd pass. Yeah, it's yeah, like kind of yeah. counting back from 100 in sevens or whatever. Who's the prime minister? <laughs> you, you may not know that. Doesn't yeah. it mean you've got dementia, but yeah. as things go on, there might be a, a brain. There might be a scan of the brain. There might be other kind of functional tests that happen, but there have been issues. There can be issues with health communication as well. I think we're getting better, but when I first started my research in like 2010, 11, some of the stories I was hearing around the way the diagnosis was given was just shocking. You know, people were, you know. Un- it, it's it's alzheimer's disease and then you were sent out into a crowded waiting room and you, you, your whole world had been rocked and there was no signposting there was no support you were just kind of well these carers felt like they'd just been completely cast off from what i'm hearing it's better now but obviously there's still people who fall through the gaps so what like so what, So say that that did happen and you you know you went to
0: doctors or whatever and he said that you know they have got alzheimer's disease what what sort of treatment do people normally get? Is there a treatment, or is there some way to alleviate the symptoms,
1: or mm. or
0: is it just like a progressive
1: thing that you just kind of have to get on with? It, it's it's incurable. Um, so di- I mean, people don't often understand. I mean, like, it took me a while to kind of get my head around the diff- what dementia is. Really, it sounds ridiculous to say that, but dementia is the symptoms that you see. So that's the you know that the the. the the cognitive impairment, the memory problems, the certain behaviours, the Alzheimer's disease is the cause. For example, that's the leading cause. It's to do with damage in the brain. Now, because it is to do with damage in the brain, it is uncurable But you can take drug treatment. Typically, is the, the kind of the gold standard. Again, that doesn't cure it, but it will treat the symptoms so that it. Okay it will make it slightly less progressive but it is a progressive neurodegenerative condition which gets worse the longer you have it which again is a challenge for carers and services working with carers and people with dementia because what works in the early stages of the disease might not work later on because there's different challenges and because what we know from resilience is because it's a stress response the response has got to change as the goalposts of the stress change so in the early stages for example you know, there's, a, there's an increasing number of people being diagnosed with early onset dementia before the age of 60. There's people I've seen in support groups who, like, you know, the, like younger than my mum. And I'm looking at them thinking, like, you just think of your own, don't you?
0: Is there a, is there a, a causation behind that? Is there a potential reason why there the would be more of this I'm, diagnosis? Or we are get, we getting better at being able to recognise it? Or is there something changed in society? I, I'm
1: really not my kind of area, but I think we're getting better at recognising it, mm. um, even in the last sort of 10 years. I think there's Got to be careful with the way that I say this, but th- you've, there's slightly less stigma now mm. than there was. There's still stigma around anything mental, anything yeah, kind of bo- yeah. above the neck. Someone said to me once, we've got a problem with, and there's a long, long way to go, but it is less stigmatised now than it was. So I think people feel more able... Um, to speak up about it as well and to present in the first place. Um, but I'm not sure. I don't think people fully understand the cause. And I think yeah. what causes one type might not necessarily cause another type and it's very complicated. Um, but as a psychologist, I think our job is just to kind of understand how people live with the condition, um, you know, from a psychological perspective. I
0: suppose as a carer, what, what, I suppose that the key... I don't know, again, from from our side, we all see that, that the key thing is trying to keep a person living independently in their own home as yeah. long as possible. But I suppose it gets to a point with things like dementia where there does need to be maybe residential or real specialist care. And I suppose of all the resilience in the world as a carer, there must be a point where you get to where you just can't do it anymore.
1: Yeah. Aging in place is this kind of term that's used. So most people, if you speak to them, want to remain living in their home for as long as possible. It's what they're used to. It's what they've always. It's where they've always been. The problem is as the disease progresses and as caregiving becomes more challenging, that might not be feasible anymore. Um, you know. You might have a bed in the living room. You might have carers coming in and yeah. out of the, of the house all day. So, at that stage, it's about reevaluating and, and, and giving people the reassurance that that's okay. So, you know, you hear horrible stories where people have promised their loved ones that they'll never put them in a home, they'll never have to go into care. But you don't know what things are going to be like in five, six, seven years' time. So, and again, that's not necessarily the end, it's just the nature of the care has changed. And often you mentioned earlier about former carers yeah, massively under researched group. Yeah. And pharma carers doesn't just include people who've been bereaved, by the way. It can include people who, whose loved ones are now in a home, yeah, in a care yeah, residential yeah. setting. They may still identify as a carer, they may not. But it's about looking at that whole kind of um, what we call a trajectory of care, looking at different care status transitions from being in the home to sort of visiting loved ones in residential settings. And then often, you know, in some cases... After the bereavements took place, as well, how people kind of disengage from that whole role, which, as I said earlier, is in some cases taken like ten, fifteen years of the life. Yeah, so it's how people reestablish themselves after that as well.
0: And I suppose, like again, of what we worked with a, a group called I think they were called they were called Roll On. They were in, um, they were based in the Whittle. A great fella called John Flynn and his um, his wife ran it. It was fantastic, but I knew it for former carers and. Um, it always shocked me because it was something that you you read all this stuff around unpaid carers and all this but there was very little on these former carers that that, that we came across and like You say these people 10 15 years of their lives, and and, and there was many cases where people had to leave the jobs, they couldn't have a social life, everything was this care role. Mm. So, as soon as that came to an end, they, 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 they had nothing, they didn't feel like they had a purpose. And in trying to reintegrate back into society, and some of them were, were quite young as well, and yeah. um, you know, getting back into employment, into you know, meeting up with friends like, how, how do I live without this? Yeah, so I don't know if some people found carers. Not not a
1: a nice thing, but something that, that gives them that purpose of what yeah. what they were doing. I think the problem with former carers um support and research is they're often that group is often subsumed within kind of like a lot of bereavement research mm-hmm. and there is a lot of bereavement and widowhood research. But it's a distinct group. Once you're a carer, you're always a carer, it doesn't matter whether your loved one's passed away or not. Those that kind of identity that people take on, even if you don't use the badge carer, that nurturing Caring person that you've had to be or chose to be for so long suddenly stops. How do you reestablish yourself and it's 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 kind of a it's, it's paradoxical it's it's like horrible irony that 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 process of getting into the carer mindset that you have to do as a carer and and, and accepting and embracing that identity that helps you suddenly you're not a carer anymore, and that's what ends up hindering you because yeah. you can't become Warren again yeah. Um, and there's all all kinds of economic social impacts as well around you might have been out of work for years how do you re-establish yourself in the kind of labour market and god I knows what i suppose looking at it just from a total economic perspective to
0: start with then if you've been doing that carer role and you've had access to x benefits to support you in the role or x support then would it just does it just stop then after you know at when that bereavement happens. So you're not only left with that
1: gap there, mm-hmm. you'd also want a real stressful, potentially financial position as well. The financial impact is huge. I mean, it's, carers saved the, the economy um, billions of pounds. I think there's a, one stat that always struck me. In the US, carers saved the US economy more money than McDonald's makes in profits globally a year. Wow. Um, so without them, if you pull the rug on them, then... You just in a terrible, terrible place, and it's 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 equivalent in the in the UK. It's equivalent all over the world. To so be well, how would
0: the how would the um, calculate that? So if, if there wasn't these carers, these people would need like social care, yes. residential care, yeah. clinical, and that would all have to be paid for yeah. by the state.
1: Yeah. yeah, and the thing about the family care is they're doing they're wearing all the different hats, so that they're being a domiciliary carer. Uh, you know they're administering medication. They're doing clinical things. They're, they're doing the accounts. They're you know that in some cases they're still working. And it, it's worth saying as well, my my research focuses on older on older on older people. There's an increasing number of younger carers yeah. which are getting better at spotting as well. There's you know uh, even in our university for example there's now a, there's now a form on the UCAS application where you tick are you a carer? Um, these people that's all they've ever known. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So. Some people are caring throughout their entire lives. Um, but one thing that always comes back to me that really touched me in one of the interviews I did, in fact, it's happened in quite a few interviews, is that the, the sheer gratitude that carers have is you speak to them, th- there's always somebody worse off. Yeah, yeah, And you think, like, you know, you've got it really, really hard and you can always see the positive and you know, not everyone can, but I've always been kind of really humbled by people who say, like, it could be worse, he could have got it when he was 50 and not when he was 80. Yeah, or I could have been one of these poor young carers who are having to kind of battle school with a social life, with looking after mum.
0: That's interesting, That so they, they yeah. see the carer role, you know, they come at it from a positive slant rather than, you know, yeah. like a bit of a chip, like I should have this and I should yeah. have that.
1: I've I've always been amazed by that, That's and again, it's that. not everyone, um, but a surprising number of carers have that gratitude and that kind of downward Of course, I mean, I'm not surprised, because it takes a certain kind of person to to do what they do, Yeah, you know, kind of a certain level of emotional strength and maturity so i suppose one and we all gonna have to do it though well you reckon you know one in four of us will develop dementia just just dementia alone is that the figure now yeah Yeah. um i think it's just because the, the population is aging which means that there's going to be more older people over the age of 65 than there are younger people uh well you know well, then there are people able to look after them, and the whole kind of the whole world is heading in, th- in that direction. There are some countries in kind of Asia where it 's even worse than than we 've got it and it 's quite worrying when you look at the state of the social care system and you know the, where it is now it 's not even it 's not even equipped to look after the people we 've got no. now where's that's it going to be when you know when my mum um do you think the
0: emphasis is just going to be totally on unpaid care, to city as much as possible, and the people with the maximum need, where it's quite severe, will have a social care intervention put in place. I as think you see, it now it's quite you know it's yeah, not yeah. easy to get a social care package put in place, no. especially if you're not paying yourself.
1: Yeah, um, I think it's going to have to be. I, 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 it's just a, it's a whole kind of patchwork. It's that toolkit idea, the resources. Everyone's going to you know, the problem with resilience is it's like people feel like it's putting responsibility on the individual when services should be stepping up and identifying and preventing and things like that. And that's important, of course. However, with the direction we're going in, people are, are going to have to take it upon themselves and they are going to have to have their own toolkit and they're going to have to do a lot of it themselves. And it's about learning what works and what doesn't work um, and getting the infrastructure in place. It's you know, a long way to go. Um, but even when it is in place, as I said, there are things that people are going to have to... There are gaps they're going to have to plug Um and there are, you know, there are things that there are storms that are just gonna to have to weather. And that's just the harsh reality of it. And that's just dementia. Not to mention, you know, because there are gonna be more older people, there are gonna be more chronic illnesses yeah. across the whole board mm. that we're all gonna to have to step up. So I think it's gonna I think the caring, professional carers, paid carers, for one of a better word. I think that there's people should take a lot of um, pride actually in, in, in the work that that is because that's going to be if if it's not now it's going to become the most important job that people have
0: well we oh, i've got to admit it's it's a constant challenge we have and we try and promote that the idea of the professional yeah. carer and one of the i think one of the issues at the moment which i, I don't understand why it's not in place, there's no professional body for carers and i think that's just ridiculous because i think it just it not only gives them the care of themselves that nice bit of like status of the professional body but it also provides that element of support and i think it also provides a safeguarding element that you could be struck off the register because mm. there's so many carers you see who just bounce from care company to care company And they're in this position now where care companies are kind of competing against each other. You've got local authorities paying absolute minimum rates per hour. So it's forcing providers to pay this low rate. And it's all a bit of a mess. And Mm. I do sympathise with them on on the rate of pay because, especially in areas which we work in that it is predominantly deprived areas. Mm. So people don't have the the money to pay privately. They're not at that asset level. So it is tough, but... um, you know, uh, I've seen the work they do. And I think, f- you know, throughout the pandemic, I think it has got better. People mm. have respected it a lot more. I mean, we st- you still get the odd dickhead. I mean, we had the, um, the article in the Echo where someone called me the CEO of our swipers. So <sighs> I got called Harvey, called loads of stuff like oh, that. Oh my God. Um So, but again, these people are all saying that until they have it in the family yeah. or they have someone come in. And, you know, there, there are a lot of carers out there who you know are less than perfect, but I would say definitely within our organization and ones I've seen locally, they're absolutely fantastic. Mm. The vocation and the dedication to people, and I'd say 99.9% of them don't see it as a job, it is a vocation. Yeah. Um, but we have people you know, a lot of people have come from care from unpaid care to roles, so yeah. you've had people are oh, cared for me, nan, or I cared for me husband, and I uh, you know not that they'd say they enjoyed doing that but they felt like they developed something they developed a passion for doing it yeah, um, which then brought them into the job I mean within the pandemic we, we doubled our workforce mm. Um Amazing. so th- there has you know there has been positives in that regard yeah. I just hope it, it stays on and, and one of the frustrations I get I mean I love the NHS and I'm part of the NHS but the there's a, there's a real divide between how people would view you know an NHS worker to a social care worker yeah. you'd even get you know when people were able to go you know to the front of the queues and like your b and and your Asda's and all that we had carers who, who, who you know they were getting sent to the back they were being embarrassed and we had issues like that and you're seeing it all the time Deliveroo giving 25,000 meals out to you know healthcare mm. staff but social care workers are like the lowest paid there is yeah. half of them are on zero hours contracts these are the ones that should be getting you know any you know money and funds towards them and I'm not saying the NHS shouldn't they definitely should but I think if there's a group that we really should look
1: at it it is definitely the social care worker it's it's just it's about trying to establish parity isn't it I mean there's no reason why they shouldn't be seen in the same way they're doing exactly the same things just don't have that same it's both vocational um, and I think one thing that frustrated me throughout the early pandemic is, you know, the kind of tabloides, hidden heroes, um, frontline and all this kind of stuff. But often the real frontline was more advanced than what they were saying it was. Yeah. So that before you get into hospital, before you get into A&E, there were domiciliary carers and there were family carers and there was nothing. And even now, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's very much coverage at all in the media around family carers and domiciliary carers working in social care settings no well as I say we, we started our
0: own thing trying to push it and we did we did have some things in the echo and we pushed it but it, yeah it's it's exactly that because these care workers were in people's homes you know every day mm. went all throughout this and you know, when it was first kicking off, the the guidance on PPE was changing daily. You know, the fear uh, amongst not only the the, the staff, but the people, the families they were going into was massive. Yeah, Um, And, you know, a lot of our carers, the young, they've got young families and things like that. And they were like, you know, am I going to get this and spread it? And so... You know, I take my hat off to every single one of them because I think, but what we found in it is that, you know, we always have the messing around, people going off sick and all this, you know, coming up with all weird and wonderful excuses going off. But in the pandemic, we didn't have it. And I I think it sounds cliche, but, you know, this wartime spirit, people really did, I think, took it on themselves to say, you know what? I, I'm proud to be doing this. Yeah. And, you know, when we look back on this, I can say, you know, yeah. I was part of doing something.
1: There's resilience in that, isn't there? Yeah. You know, there's resili- Everyday carers, whether you're unpaid or paid, doing what you're doing requires a great deal of resilience. But actually the pandemic comes along and it just compounds everything. And you, it, I think it's that whole, it can make or break you. And it's really, really, well, it, it doesn't surprise me that it's people of capitalised on it and they've, they've just taken the bull by the horns because that's part of their nature but I think there's, there's so much that can be done to, um, to better recognise the work they do and, and to reward it as well and to recognise it and you know looking at things like accreditation I think is massively important I just, it's just, and, and, and even if they can't put the, the finance in place at the front
0: line, at least having that career path yeah. to, to improve them. Because what, what we try and do is we, we put people through all the qualifications. I mean, level two, level three, level fives, so we've even got people on degrees and stuff like that. But where I'd like to see it go is where you could do maybe your level two, level three, or whatever, and then go on to a nursing apprenticeship, or you could have a, a feeder where if you want to become a nurse, be a domiciliary care worker first. Get yeah. that ground and get your communication skills right. Get your hands dirty, and we've got to be honest. We've got a lot of students working for us, and um, a lot of them on nursing degrees and things like that. And you know, it's changed them as people. Mm-hmm. You know, the skills they've got and what they can bring to to nursing is, is fantastic because. You know, you've got the challenges of the ward, but with Dom Care, you're going into people's houses, yet you're following the care plan, but sometimes you don't know what situation you're going into. You know, you could be dealing with someone who's at death's door Mm -hmm. and you're the only one there. So there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges, and I think it's a job like going back to how did something that can really develop resilience. Yeah, um, and I don't even think just nurses; I think any type of clinic um, clinician, um, definitely doctors. So you know, you talking about developing your bedside manner, and your yeah. communication, you, you couldn't get a better thing for it. And I yeah. think we have we have had a few, to be honest. who have gone on and done that. Um, but to be honest, another thing we found from the pandemic is we've had people, a lot of people who've been made, you know, redundant and stuff who've come to us, um, and that's, you know, that's really sad and he thought, you know what, we'll give it a go. So we try and implement our own resilience building measures from the start. So what we do is we have like a shadow and we have like a staff ambassador team, um, you know, training, because in the past, yeah, they'd get trained in the DBS and shadow and that, but it was quite a fast process and mm. you, it was, wasn't long before they were on their own. So our, our retention rates were really low. So whereas now they're getting a lot better, well, they're, they're a million times better, but if you look across the sector, I think the retention rate's something like 33%. So, you know, you're taking 10 on, you're keeping three. Crazy. Um, and I think it is, it, there's, it's such a shocking job from... You know, looking at you know, doing the reading about it, and you know, maybe watching a few videos, doing the training. To them being in someone's house, you know, um, it's you know, it's a different world.
1: I think there's a lot of psychology. I think I've looked at the employability figures for psychology graduates, our psychology graduates, Mm. and kind of support worker kind of jobs. A lot of people that we teach want to go on and become clinical psychologists or you know some some sort of psychotherapist, and a lot of them are uh, kind of. you know, attracted to those kinds of jobs. And I think it's a great thing because as you said, it is the front line. Developing those communication skills, developing that resilience and that, that level of um interpersonal skill is really important. I
0: think we've had about four or five from your course. Yeah, yeah. Didn't surprise with us. Me. Yeah. Um Yeah, it is. It, it and again with the students, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Yeah. But again after that first week or two, if they stick it, you know, um, we've got one at the moment and if met her, the meta of thought there's no way she's going to stick this struggled at first but then dug deep and now it's just a star carer for us yeah um, but yeah yeah alright I'll stop plugging care <laughs> um, but you know I suppose going back to the unpaid carers thing one, one argument that I sort of come up against when we were doing the work is kind of what they did in other countries. People those always affair back, well, you know, in Spain and all this or wherever, they look after the families or that the family will come and live with them when they're old. They wouldn't put them in residential care or get carers yeah. coming in. Is is that is that an accurate portrayal of what goes on or is that just people being negative? <laughs>
1: um, I think there are obviously cultural differences in the way that people care and, and and the conception of care as well what care means mm. there are quite um broad differences between kind of eastern cultures and western cultures so I, I do think in parts of asia people do tend to be more respectful of older people there isn't mm. the same stigma like you know your old granny biddy kind of thing yeah, yeah. that horrible kind of terminology that you, that, you, that you can hear over here Um, according to the the research literature that just isn't the case and and as a a by-product of that a lot of care is kept in the family and it's not outsourced very much although it is in some cases Um, but I don't think that means that we're over here we're any less kind of compassionate or anything I just think we've got different challenges Is there anything we can learn from from these
0: countries do they does their state support them as ours does or is it very much you are
1: on your own as a family mm. unit I'm not sure about the kind of those kind of support measures in in those countries. I know like in parts of Scandinavia like they've got like fantastic you know efficient care systems where they do seem to look after um carers more, but again it's it, different uh geographic structures, different political structures it's really hard to kind of compare across mm. um but I, I, I just think you've got to over here. Um, it's about um, being able to identify carers, appreciate, understand what they do, and try and gain parity between some of those other caring professions, which do get a lot more kind of credibility and a lot more respect. Because I think if there's more respect and acknowledgement, then people are more likely to come forward and ask for help when they need it, and they're not going to feel as a shame. Because you hear all sorts of stories about people feeling like they're not worthy of support or I don't need support or whatever. And you, they so clearly do. What, I suppose we didn't really answer it. What, as a carer, what support
0: is out there for a carer? Yeah. Like, what, it, like say you're listening to this and you know, you, you'd say, well, you know what, I think I am a carer. What kind of support could I have access
1: to? Yeah. So as far as I'm aware, the main gateway for support is, is a carer's assessment. Um, and who we, does that? which are done it'd be done by like the local authority okay um so but they
0: would have to would they contact them or would they get to like the gp or someone to do that
1: the gp can um or it can be you know you can be captured in different ways like some people um might present to like the local like where i've done my work there's like a little um there's a carer's center but again it's the those are the lucky ones because the people who don't identify mm. as a carer, the problem is with a carer's assessment, it's called a carer's assessment. So you've got to identify as a carer to, to go so forward. you've got to
0: break that barrier before you Yeah, even do if that. you're
1: in a GP office, you know, you're at a GP appointment and you're like, um, I look after my husband. Mm. It's like words you cross the line between looking after your husband and being his carer. Yeah. Um, so it's about... It's just about. I think that identity is really, really important because often you won't get the support until a lot of people don't like the carer term because, like, it's and in, in health. Well, and what are. does the fa- I suppose that answer on that
0: question? There, what, uh, what? Where is the barrier between? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm just looking after them. You know, I'm helping them out. So I am a carer. Is is there a a boundary? Is there some type of thing that you'd say that would be a?
1: What I've learned is that. There's a psychological identity to it, but in terms of support, it's it's a badge that you've kind of got to wear to get the support. So yeah. it's really, it's kind of like a, um, a a support term that you've got to use. Um, but that's what I mean. The problem is people don't identify as a carer until they're quite far along, by which time they could have had years worth of help. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying that help would have been perfect, but it would have been better than nothing. So it's a carer's assessment. And then there can be a whole host of kind of signposting. But again, it's about, is there infrastructure there to signpost to? Um, yeah. And what kinds of support? And how does it, how would the carer's assessment work? How,
0: how does that assessment process take it's place? It's just
1: around collecting, you know, information on um, the nature of the care they provide, who they're caring for, how many hours they do, things like this that. lead to a social
0: work assessment for the person you care for?
1: Potentially, yeah. yeah. It's Again, it's not... I think I've got colleagues who've worked more on that kind of area from like a public health perspective. I've mm. learnt more of just from people's experiences of it. Mm. Um, and what are people's experiences of it? Well, is it, it's, like is it positive? negative? Yeah. It's seen as soon um, as paperwork, which often people are quite can be quite yeah, averse yeah. to, and that the, the the project I'm working on, looking at people, the the company providing online support. One of the things that they're trying to do is to get it online because it seems to be quite mm. a sort of dated. Um, you know, questionnaire based system, which often people are. To, I've been in rooms with, you know, support group with, with older individuals who are like, I just I don't want to fill out another form. Yeah. I just feel like all they do is fill out forms. So it's about trying to diversify how we collect data and how we collect information from people and try and streamline that for people as much as possible because they've got enough on the plate you know without being asked 20 questions do you think the system kind of benefits well
0: it it does like from what we said it does benefit from people not identifying as carers really because I suppose in Whittle if you had that that town I was talking about before the 60,000 people coming forward for the carer's assessment you're just going to be overwhelmed and yeah. then if all of them 60,000 then claim some sort of is it like carer's allowance carers and things allowance, like that yeah.
1: then which is negligible you know I think it reminds me of the whole pandemic thing around like you know um keeping well and staying out of hospital. Mm. It's so that you don't end up with a bottleneck. Yeah. And there's there's absolutely an issue here around if everyone who was providing care suddenly came forward at once, we'd be overrun. Yeah. Um so yeah, if you look at it like that, we're not equipped for everyone who is caring to come forward and say I'm a carer. So really, we're striving for a better infrastructure and a better methods of assessment. But if that was 100% successful, we'd be overrun. So that, that's, that's the kind of, that's the floor of the system, I so think. that early identification. Yeah.
0: So say you like went into the doctors or whatever and say like your husband or your wife or whatever, they say they just got a diagnosis of Parkinson's or something okay. like that. And the doctor found that you were the person that lives with them and potentially were going to support them would they not just identify you as a carer there and then? You know what I mean? Could that not be done at the diagnosis stage of X chronic condition?
1: I think that label can be used, but I think the formal process of going through the carer's assessment, yeah. that, that is its own process. Um, so it's just more boundaries for people, isn't it? Is. It
0: So you've got to go from them to them. Yeah. And then, again, you've got to be one of these type of people that are going to say, oh, Fife. Because I know, again... Yeah. Relatives, grandparents, they're like, oh, I'm not doing that. I, I don't, yeah. I'm a bit worried about that. I don't want to put my name. I've never claimed for nothing in my life and you yeah. know, that type of thing.
1: Yeah. Um, and people, one of the biggest challenges people have is they feel like they're being passed from pillar to post. I think what, for me, the gold standard support is one that is kind of, you know, a one-stop shop. It's, uh, it's centralised, um, all in one. So people don't have to be passed from pillar to post. People don't have to speak to 12 people about the same issue. Yeah, Um, It's like if you go to the GP about a problem and then the next time you go back for a follow-up, it's a different GP. You've got to explain it all again. It's just, it's things that are actually quite simple um, that can be done much better, I think. Before you start worrying about that, you know, quite cerebral, you know, how do we improve the Social care as a whole—it's about just getting the straightforward bits right. I think, yeah, just getting the process right, communication, yeah, um, basic things like that. <sighs> <Get a long laughs> we not end on a
0: better note, <laughs> a positive thing. Well, I suppose so. I suppose one. What I didn't
1: really ask you this to start. What What drove you to get into this area? What What drives you? Well. Like so many, my gran was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in well when was it in like two thousand and eight or something um, and i found it I found dementia fascinating i was just, i just couldn't it was like people just she was just behaving oddly. you couldn't quite put your finger on what it was, mm. so that's how I got interested in psychology really, but more so, what really struck me is the impact that it had on my granddad who'd been looked after his whole life, his teammate for him. Um, he'd gone out and won the bread you know breadwinner and she'd stayed at home um, and suddenly he was looking after her and obviously it was gradual but ended up providing personal care and seeing how much he struggled with that and I just thought I'm going to have to find out more about this and it sort of coincided with my undergraduate degree Mm. and I had an opportunity to do a research project as, as students do in their third year of studies so I decided to do it on dementia care which involved interviewing um, dementia carers about their experiences. And that's how I became interested in resilience, because it was like, how do people carry on doing this when they're under so much stress? Yeah, Why does person A fall when person B grows? That kind of thing. And that basically led on to me starting my PhD and continuing that research forward. So in many ways, if I hadn't have had that personal family experience, I wouldn't have done (laughs) what I'm doing. So... And that's it, isn't it? I think a lot of these,
0: like you've saying before about the vocational element, there's something that drives you to get into this there type is. of work, isn't it?
1: There is. And often research, the scene is seen as a bit of a disconnect, like academic, you know, ivory tower kind of thing. But I think good research, some of the best researchers I work with are working directly with industry partners. They're working mm. in the community, um, collecting the right kind of data you know, interviewing people, real people about their lives, their lived experiences, and then feeding that directly into policy um, with measurable outputs and changes. One of my hopes, for example, this measure that I'm developing, I've got colleagues who developed other measures that are currently being used all over the world, you know, to screen mental health and stress. I'd love for this resilience measure to be used in a similar way to help identify carers who are at risk so that we can intervene earlier. And, and identify people who are doing really well so that we can say to that individual, you're doing really well. Would you mind helping yeah. um, Paul, who is in a similar situation to you?
0: So like, the peer, like a peer support? A peer like support, balance. but then
1: in crea- creating the forum within which that can happen as well, whether that be a support setting, whether it be online, whether it be face-to-face. Okay.
0: So if you were to say, you were to summarise what you'd want to achieve by your
1: research, yeah. you would be having that, that, that change and that resilience? I think a change in... In tone, I think carers need to be recognised and appreciated more. Get the support they need for resilience. For, for there to be a kind of positivist view, which is not to be misinterpreted as me kind of, you know, saying that it's all great because it it really isn't. And as as we've discussed, but trying to view it constructively and proactively and resiliently, view it more like that, and trying to. Push that prevention better than cure so that we can identify at-risk individuals, help them at the point that they need it so they don't end up in a worse situation down the line. And ultimately, if you can care for the carer, the yeah. person with dementia, for example, or wh- whatever chronic illness, is going to fare better. Well, it's
0: based that thing. You can't look after other people if you don't look
1: after yourself. Exactly. It's, it's so true, yeah. So, I suppose a question I always ask
0: guests to the podcast, um, do you think the Liverpool City region cares
1: that's a good question yeah again i can only yeah I, I think a lot of what i see there's some really good examples some really great examples of good practice that i see um i think so, you know some of the stuff that you spoke about that you do around kind of establishing that sense of vocation um, getting carers to recognize the importance of what they do um i wonder whether there's a platform for that kind of information to be shared for good practice to be shared more because that we should be it should be good practice should be celebrated but it should also be you know we call it knowledge exchange i wonder to what extent we do we do a lot, lot of knowledge exchange in the uni but i wonder to what extent there is a platform for people who are doing great things to share that knowledge with others so that they can do it too
0: i think one of the one of the main challenges that exists definitely within the voluntary sector is that the way funding and commissioning is, is, is being developed has forced organisations to become more competitors than partners Yeah. so organisations I think can be quite um, protective over information, over service users and things like that and yeah. ultimately it provides a total destruction of a hol- holistic model of support for that yeah. person and I think that's something that really needs to, um, to be addressed definitely across the city region because it's something that I've, I've seen um first hand yeah so another question i'd ask one who who are who are three people that you you'd like to name that you'd say who care and you think it may be good guests to come on in the future
1: oh that's a good question
0: maybe people who are from like a similar background to yourself maybe people who you've come across in whatever form of, of work that you've done
1: um i'd say my mom but <laughs> i'm not sure she'd uh, she'd she'd come on she wouldn't know what to do with this microphone uh, <laughs> um well there's a lot of people um i think research it's hard to not identify individuals but i think the problem with research is it's seen as disconnected from everything else and talk about that issue around holistic is researchers are seen as like you know Blue sky thinking. Let's put out a load of recommendations which are just not practicable in real life at all. So I think trying to dispel anyone who can come on and dispel myths. I think that's a really name, worthwhile. Name three people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can. You know, not get it. academically out of this one. The <laughs> like politicians' answer. Um, I don't know if I can name individuals. You've caught me off guard. Is there, there no one you've come across
0: from any of the groups or anything that you've worked with when you've been doing? You know research that you
1: think maybe you know what there is so i'm doing a lot of stuff i'm I'm starting to work more around um arts and heritage okay and the role that arts and heritage does for people's well-being and i do a lot of stuff around music as an intervention for people living with dementia and their carers okay and there's a group i'm involved with at the moment um there's two older guys who've they've been carers themselves family carers themselves who are now running this group. It's not been running because of COVID. Yeah. But they just do a singing group for okay. people with dementia and their carers. That'd be a really interesting perspective.
0: Okay. what what What's the group
1: called? Um, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. It's like Liverpool. It's got Liverpool in the title. I that one. Hate that. <laughs> um, all right, we'll do his favour then. Um, email us over
0: some of the, the contact details. Or I'll, I'll get in that, touch.
1: That would be something that would um, be really interesting as well because there's some really interesting research around you know, there's a lot of stuff around drug treatment and pharmaceuticals and all this lot, but how do we promote well-being? And these guys have been carers themselves. They've yeah. been carers themselves. Okay, That whole model of by carers for carers, I think's really powerful peer support, if you like. I'll let you off with the other two. <laughs> um I- till next door on a spring. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then, so to, um,
0: just to wrap up, any final thoughts, on Is there any, if people were listening who may be a carer or maybe living with a loved one with dementia, is there any... For you would pass on to them,
1: just I think you're absolutely fantastic, and I don't need to say carry on doing what you're doing because you you will because you see it as um, your duty. I just think if you need help, there's no shame in asking for it. I think it shows strength and resilience, Um, and you know, without exception, every single care I've ever spoken to during the course of my research and in my personal life, um, the, the day that you say. I can't do this anymore and reach out is a complete game changer. So just reach out for help. Yeah. If you need it. Okay. Fantastic. So massive thank you to um, Dr. Warren Donnellan
0: from the university of Liverpool for being our guest on today's podcast. So I think that key message, I think, which, which run, through today's podcast is that make sure you're reaching out and don't be afraid to say you're a carer and don't be afraid to say you need help regardless if it's carer or you're struggling with your mental health or what make sure to reach out and there should be support available so thanks a lot for listening folks see you next time